You know, mm. I'm just saying we're moving on into organic. Why would you want to add something that ends with side? Pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, side. You know, that's the same suffix as in, in suicide, yeah. homicide, and genocide. Why would you put stuff like that on your food? This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in today. Today's episode is a conversation with Winona LaDuke. Winona is an internationally renowned activist, economist, and organizer working on sustainable development, renewable energy, and smarter, more secure food systems. She's also a two-time United States vice presidential candidate, running both times with Ralph Nader. Winona recently visited the University of Montana to give the presidential lecture series address. It was great to get some time with her and to dig into important issues facing not only tribal communities, but our broader society as well. Winona certainly pulls no punches in this conversation, and she has the courage to question, if not outright discard, some of the basic assumptions guiding our politics and our economy. There's a lot to learn from here, and I'm excited to bring you our conversation right now. Winona, welcome to Missoula, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. I need... Yeah, you braved some uh, intense weather to get here, but it sounds like you know somebody from northern Minnesota. It's just no uh, nothing new for you. Yeah, no, in Fargo in northern Minnesota, it's a little colder, a little windier coming out of Fargo. You know, it's, when you hit my woods, I live out in the woods in the middle of the White Earth Reservation, and when you hit the woods, you're like, oh, that's why we live here, and not in the middle of the northern plains. You know, so we're good, we're good. Exactly. So welcome. You're here for the presidential lecture series address this evening, and we're just really grateful to have some of your time and to talk about your amazing work. You know, I think that um, kind of some of the my first touch points with your work, obviously, when you got a we're, we're vice presidential candidate with Ralph Nader, that was my first sort of recognition of, of your name and your role, but started to grow more familiar with your work through some of the pipeline protests and Honor the Earth. And yeah, it's just amazing to have you here. And I'd love to talk about kind of the road you took to, to get into your work as, a, as an organizer, as a leader, as an economist. Heard in other interviews, you sort of haven't been en- enamored to the term activist, but a lot of people have used that term to describe your work. Just, I mean, just starting with the term activist, I, I mean, I just consider myself a responsible human being. Okay. You know, and I, and I kind of look at this big picture. And so, like, I spend a lot of time trying to protect water. And I feel, feel like wanting the right to water is a human right. Mm-hmm. And defending that right to water shouldn't make me an activist. That should make me a, a, a human being that wants water. And, and I, you know, I do rankle at the term a little bit. And, I, and, and I'm wondering why corporations who are going to contaminate your water aren't called terrorists. Yeah, good and point. and you know that's a Montana question. Certainly, mm-hmm. there's certainly a, a huge amount of contamination from mining companies in 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 Montana, and 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 you know to me, I I want to be the person who can. Yeah, I live in a place where you can still drink the water from a lake. You know, my job is try to keep it that way. I've, uh, you know, I've spent most of my life. I'm a as you know, I'm a rural development economist. I um, also farm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, s- uh, smaller scale. I'm a heritage. Uh, corn, bean, squash, tobacco, Jerusalem artichokes, and potato girl, um, along with basil, because I happen to like uh, pesto sauce a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I've done that for most of my life, and I am now a hemp farmer, too. 
Okay. Yeah, so I definitely I grow, want to talk about the hemp stuff. Right, I do. Yeah. I grow uh, industrial uh, fiber hemp. Okay. That's my that's my goal. So I, you know, I'm interested in um, how, you know, what our communities are going to be like 50 years from now, 30 years from now. Who's in charge of that? Mm-hmm. Um, where your water is going to come from? Where your energy is going to come from? Where your food's going to come from? How we're going to treat each other and and who makes those decisions? It's not just a native issue. You know, it's really issues of of how democracy is practiced or how we're going to survive, frankly, in the in the face of climate change and and um, you know the the catastrophic ecological challenges that we now face. So, when was the seed first planted for this this type of um, this type engagement, of this type of leadership? I mean, I know you did your undergraduate at Harvard, studied economics, and then is that the point where you moved to the White Earth Reservation permanently? Yes, that's right. Um, well, you know, I come from a good family mm-hmm. to start with, and both of my parents were um, were my mother still is my mother's name is Betty LaDuke, and she's an artist, and she has uh, always worked um, kind of in the in the arena of art and social change. She, you know, she's eighty six and does pretty much six by six or eight by ten paintings. Wow. Yeah, she's pretty much rocking it still. She's been up in and in, in a number of places have had her art, but you know, so I was raised in a in a family that said, you know, you should you should. You should speak up against injustice. You should be present. I was taken out of school for anti-war demonstrations. I, you know, was raised around farm workers. I was born in East LA, and 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 we mostly hung out with the native people and the farm workers there. So I have kind of, um, you know, I have good family, good parenting, yeah, uh, good values. And so, um, you know, I, as you are are correct, I I left Southern Oregon, small town of Southern Oregon, and, and moved to. Uh, Boston or Cambridge to go to school. I was politicized then kind of in the larger arena. Um, at that time, the indigenous people were first going to the United Nations. The UN Conference on the Rights of Indigenous People occurred in 1977 in Geneva. It was on the rights of indigenous people, the land of the Western Hemisphere. It was the first UN conference, United Nations Conference on the Rights of Indigenous People. And I um, had been a researcher you know, in high school, I debated energy policy. And my first case that I actually studied was the Amex Coal Company moving into Northern Cheyenne Reservation, Okay, wanting to lease most of the reservation um, in violation of BIA uh, leasing standards and uh, the Northern Cheyenne's tribe's battle against coal strip mining politicized me quite a bit. It, you know, so my, my initial, you know, studying of energy policy was really here in Montana. Sure. Um, and then I, you know, it kind of came to this point where I... You know, to me, these are questions, do, do large multinationals get to determine the future of your community? That's the question that I've asked pretty mm-hmm. much my whole life. And, and why do they get to determine it? And, you know, it's not only that the, that, that the table isn't set so that we're all at the same table. You know, we don't have any silverware. We don't even have a plate. Right. You know, if it's not even, it's not even level playing field. Um, but more, it's, it's these questions of, like, you know, who gets to determine the future of these communities and the, the long-term economic and environmental impact of a lot of, of mega projects that have occurred. So I've spent most of my life fighting stupid ideas. Let's just be honest about it. Uh, you know, coal gasification plants, big mega dam projects, oil and gas leasing, nuclear waste dumps, um, and now pipelines. Um, but I'm far more interested in the solutions. Right. Um, you know, and so I've, you know, also spent a good deal of time on that. And and, and, and now I'm ready for the next economy. And so All ready for it. And so speaking of that, like your grounding as an economist, in your experience, how have, how has the discipline of ec- economics both helped and hurt in terms of the issues that you've been engaged in? Well, basically the, you know, I mean, I went to Harvard and, and the economics paradigm that is taught and replicated in most universities, right. I, I assume here, is, is, is dead wrong. It's dead wrong. Okay. It's predicated on an endless growth economy. We've run out of stuff to pillage. Let's just be honest. 
you know, everything that we're extracting now, the you know, energy return on investment, EROI, it's pretty low. You know, right. that's what fracking is. Mm-hmm. Bottom of the barrel, might as well go down there, you know, send 602, shoot 602 chemicals down there, bust up the bedrock of Mother Earth and see if you can get some, some oil or gas out of there. You know, I mean, that's crazy stuff. It's, I call it Windigo economics, mm-hmm. uh, cannibal economics. And, and, and so the paradigm of capitalism, I mean, the UN came out this fall and basically said for the planet to survive, uh, capitalism has to die interesting moment in history. And so I feel like business schools should teach ecological economics. Mm-hmm. I feel like business schools should teach uh, equitable economics, not how you, you know, how a CEO's salary is 214 times that higher than an average worker. What's right about that? So, you know, I'm interested in, um, you know, economics is really, I mean, to me, it's about wealth for a community. It's not necessarily about the cash dollar. And it's certainly not about, you know, how much stuff you're exporting. It's really about, um, you know, the quality of life. I'm interested in these, these um, you know, as you, you're probably familiar, there, you know, there's, there's the GNP indicators that we generally use in, um, you know, to denote the quality of our economic wealth in this country. But sure. on a worldwide scale, they're looking at things more like uh, gross national happiness, right. or happy planet indexing. Um, you know, thoughtful, innovative countries are looking at, you know, what we really want. And Having a bunch of money and stuff doesn't actually make you happy. Just look at America. Yeah, particularly when that money and stuff is concentrated in very few hands. Well, no, well. I mean, even, you know, I mean, I'm looking at, I don't know what farming communities you're looking at, but I'm looking at farms in northern Minnesota that used to have cows. Then the dairy termination program cleaned them out. They okay. moved, you know, moved all the cattle to, you know, all the, all the dairy cows over to California. And so then you, now you have those large farms and large buildings. They aren't even, there's no livestock out there on a lot of our farms. They're all filled with people's boats and trailers. They're storing people's stuff. You know, so I'm just kind of looking at, like, what kind of a rural economy is that? Sure. Where's your food coming from? You know, we spend a lot of time taking care of our stuff. I mean, you look at Annie Leonard's uh, movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it called The Story of Stuff. I have not. It's like, you know, 90% of the stuff that we make is like garbage within six months. Mm -hmm. So that economic model and paradigm is is really not only not sustainable but it's downright stupid over the long haul and so i'm i'm someone who's interested in the next economy and um you know indig or indigenous economics because indigenous economics are land-based economics and those um you know i live in a place where we got wild rice from the same lake for ten thousand years you let me know what american can t- say that they've done anything sustainably for more than 10 years right you you you, you show me an example mm-hmm. maybe we could learn something from indigenous people that's kind of my thinking and i'd like to see these economic schools kind of like get out of the the box that they're in you know because it's a suffocating box of, and you know time to just kind of stick your head up and look around try some new things mm-hmm. think about think about getting out of your box you know so there's this I, I, I'm going to make an assumption that there's that there potentially a tension in your work. You know, so much of there's so much dedicated to stopping pipelines, for example. Yet at the same time, you're talking about some real solutions, actionable solutions that can be implemented at a community level. At a, potentially, can be scaled up to a national level. How do you kind of balance the the saying no to bad ideas with saying, you know? you should be paying attention to good ideas and here's some good ideas. Good question. I mean, you know, there was a, a great, uh, a great Dakota philosopher and prophet, I would say his name, his name was John Trudell. Okay. He passed away a couple of years ago, but he used to say, 
you know, people would ask me, how come I don't garden? And he said, because someone has to keep the beast out of the garden. That's me. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of my time making sure that we can still harvest wild rice. You know, my community, um, you know, I worked with people in my community to stop the genetic engineering of wild rice. The state of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota wanted to genetically engineer wild rice. And I was like, you know, it seems like wild should mean something. And explain, yeah, explain why that's a bad thing. I mean, you know, I first mean, of all, first of all, I mean, we, we have, you know, lakes and rivers that, you know, you can harvest wild rice in the same lake and same river for 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. If you take care of your, your water, and, and in fact, rice comes back. You know, my partner, um, you know, just, just to say that there's an example of a, a lake that the rice had been drowned out by uh, recreational interests of, of summer cottage owners. Okay. Is that, you, you got the picture? Yeah, of this, yeah right? I got it. So they kept the water levels high, drowned out the rice. So there's no, the no cycle. Yeah, of, I mean, there's two mi- water levels were too high for the rice. Got it. Drowned it out. Drowned it out for 17 years, another case for 50 years. And when the water levels lowered in, a, lowered in a drought, the rice came back. So what's that teach you? You know what I mean? That teaches you about the promise and the resilience of seeds. Mm-hmm. Teaches you something about how um, the creator and, and those plants will come back if they've got a shot, which is a pretty lucky thing for us, being the, the, you know, the Anthropocene, anthropocentric people we are. All about us. But, you know... Um, so in, in their push to genetically engineer wild rice, what they wanted to do is to, I don't know, you know, whatever they want to do. But, you know, the point is, is that- Well, they want to sell seeds every year, right? Right, they right. right. Terminator seeds, the whole thing. And yeah, so yeah. we don't want that contaminating our rice beds. Sure. So I would go to these meetings with the university and they were talking about academic freedom. And I'd say, well, what about academic responsibility? Hmm. How's that work? Yeah, talk more you know, about that. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know what I'm saying is like, you don't get to do human tests anymore on people just because you want to. Mm-hmm. You know, and so in the end, we ended up with a state of legis- a piece of legislation in the state of Minnesota. It took us seven years that um, requires a full environmental and cultural impact assessment before they can introduce any GMO rice. They've never, they've never, and they never will. They never will. Um, you know, so it's an example of, you know, sometimes like I just really think, just super honest with you, there's a bunch of white guys who want to do a bunch of stuff, and it's kind of like I've, I've raised a lot of sons, and it's kind of like just because you want to, don't mean you get to. Yeah. You know, there's like a lot of ideas that you could talk to like that that are like, hey, let me try this. You know, the, all those pictures of, you know, all those guys doing dumb stuff. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. hey, let me do this. Let me do this. Sure. Someone needs to be their mother and say no. You know, and that's what I kind of feel like. It's like, I'm like, no, you shouldn't do that. You know, someone needs to put some boundaries. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time. We, we, I've worked, you know, my, my whole life at it, but I work with a lot of people in, in defeating some bad projects. But... You know, at the same time, I'm interested in the next economy. And so, you know, I'm looking at things like the, the Green New Deal. Yeah. Is this opportunity uh, to, to look at that in a federal policy arena. But I'm just going to go back to saying that in our teachings as Anishinaabe people, there's this prophecy. And that prophecy is called the time of the seventh fire. And in that time, we're told as, as Anishinaabe people that we all have a choice between two paths. One is well-worn, but it is scorched. And the other is not well-worn, and it's green. Mm-hmm. And we were told that we would have a choice upon which path to embark. I actually think that's America's situation. And so you are at this crossroads. And I'm spending a lot of time, you know, right now I've been fighting the Enbridge, Enbridge pipelines. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it's five years of my life on that. And they don't have pipeline. And, uh, you know, so, so you know, what, what their proposals would do would affect my uh, all of our quality of life. 
And so, um, you know, the economics of their idea is bad. Risk's bad. Yeah. You know, so I spend a lot of time talking about that. But more than that, I'm like capitalizing the next economy. That's what I'm doing in my community. So let's talk about these pipelines briefly, because I, I want to spend a lot of time on the on the new economy that you right. envision, or the next economy. But at the same time, people should understand from your perspective, why are these pipelines bad? Why are they worth fighting? What are the negative impacts, both at the community level, but in, in aggregate, what do they represent? Right. I mean, and it's interesting to talk about that in such a fossil fuels dependent state as right. Montana. You know, I've been to Coal Strip, you know, what a monstrosity, a monstrosity mm-hmm. of coal generation. Um you know, and, um, you know, so basically, uh, let's just be honest, we're at the end of the fossil fuel era. You know, people can say whatever they want to, but time to move on. Mm-hmm. I'd really like a graceful transition. I'm not someone that feels like I want to crash and burn my way out. I'd like a little prior planning. Sure. We're at a stage where we can make choices. Make choices. No time like the present to make a couple, you know, 40, 50 important choices. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we're looking at infrastructure. We're a country that has a D in infrastructure. Yeah. Crumbling stuff everywhere. I'm, I'm not sure what's crumbling in Montana, but we had a bridge, you know, in, in Minnesota. But you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. It's happening. You know, and I feel like, and it's going to get worse with climate change. You got mm-hmm. torrential storms. Mm-hmm. You got big Harder winds. stresses on everything. Everything is stressful. And, and we're not prepared. And I feel like, you know, I, I'm, I live in a first world country. And I, I don't want to feel like I'm not living in a first world country. I want infrastructure for people. Sure. Not for oil companies, you know, and so you're looking at a situation where based on America's inefficient use of energy and a a huge amount of peddling by dealers, fossil fuel companies, we'll just call them that, Mm -hmm. you know, you end up in a situation where you got a lot of, uh, you know, they're transitioning this plan out of um, Venezuela, you know, uh, although we will probably be taking over Venezuela's oil reserves pretty soon, judging by the Trump administration's actions. Largest oil reserves in the world are in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Largest. And so they, they had to replumb to get oil out of Canada. That's the tar sands. And so they're replumbing the oil infrastructure. And so there was five pipelines. Right. And tar sands, like, it's not that's the easy of the oil to get. No, that's, right? like, that's like the bottom of the barrel. Right. Like the carbon impact is huge. The water impact is huge. The health impact is huge. You know, it's, it's pretty much, you know, Canada's, like, cancer. The tar sands. Yeah, yeah. And cancer. they're cutting down important forests to access it. And it's, yeah, just the, the extraction there is devastating alone, but the implications of these pipelines too. Right. I mean, and then, I mean, I just want to say in a bigger picture, a lot of my problems originate in Canada. You know, everybody always acts like Canada's like all full of cool things, sure. like, you know, uh, healthcare, education. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. But the downside of that is that's been capitalized off of extractive industries. So 70% of the world's mining corporations are Canadian. Hmm. The big guys that are human rights violations, Canadian. Dams failures, Canadian. Pipelines, Canadian. Right. Canada doesn't have a plan B for its economy. Just look at Alberta. Mm-hmm. Just north of you. Not a single plan. You know, so anyway, to make a long story short, there was five big pipelines proposed out of Canada two years ago. One was called Energy East, going from Alberta to New Brunswick. One was called Northern Gateway. One was called Trans Mountain, one was called Keystone, okay, and one is called uh, Line Three. Got to get that landlocked oil out. Energy East going across Canada, longest pipeline never got approved by a National Energy Board. Second pipeline, Enbridge's Northern Gateway, huge opposition. 
didn't get approved by the National Energy Board, leaving mm-hmm. three pipelines, right? Those three pipelines, one's called Trans Mountain. I don't know if you've watched what happened in Trans Mountain, but Kinder Morgan, company out of Texas, uh, wanted to put in the pipeline. Um, moving ahead, huge opposition. Hundreds of people getting arrested. White people, not just Native people. Yeah. Full on getting arrested in British Columbia. Nobody wants that pipeline, turns out, out there. And so they said, you know, we got to sort this out. We're going to take a step back. In the meantime, there's lawsuit filed against them by the First Nations. Well, anyway, the Canadian government, Trudeau, buys that pipeline. I don't know if you saw this. Bought this pipeline in the fall. I can't remember. It was in September, maybe, for $4.9 billion. The next day, the court ruled that the, all the permits were null and void because they hadn't consulted with First Nations. So Premier Trudeau just bought like a, they're saying it's a $15 billion pipeline. They might as well just call it the Trudeau pipeline. Okay. Leaving two So pipelines. they nationalize it. They nationalized it. And, Yet, they, and, and, they, and, and they don't have any approval still. Okay. At the national level, they have no – so have intergovernmental no conflict here. Trudeau no, nationalizes it, and they, the regulatory agencies say no No, the no courts. Permit. The courts, courts said that, it, that there was no approval for okay. that. They null and void. And then that leaves two pipelines, right? One is called uh, Keystone. Mm-hmm. And as you know, um, Obama did not grant the cross-border permits based on climate change. Right. As you also know, tr- um, you know when Trump came in, he, he like waved his magic wand and made it go. And right. uh, the court here in Montana mm-hmm. – Right, ruled that uh, he couldn't just use his magic wand. He right, to, he can't just reverse a previous. Yeah, he has to have a reason. Right, and so like, how did climate change change under the Trump? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. an interesting moment. The Montana court decision also said that you know that that the use of the pipe the pipe yards were biasing. Now, I'm looking at that for Minnesota because the, 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 the fifth pipeline is line three. The use of the pipelines were biasing. No, the that, pipe yards. Pipe that, yards. That if, you, okay. if you roll out your infrastructure and pretend like you got this, that biases the EIS process. Okay. Interesting question. Okay. So I'm looking at that in Minnesota because I'm facing seven, seven pipe yards. And they've been out there for – we defeated them in 2016 on a pipeline known as the Sandpiper. And now we're looking at them in this this other pipeline, which is uh, Line 3. And, you know, we're in a pitched regulatory battle. The state of Minnesota just sued them as well to uh, overturn permits. And um, we'll see. We'll see. But, you know, people say, is it going to look like Standing Rock in Minnesota? I said, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's probably going to be a little different because uh, there's no line built. And why would I wait? Why would I wait till they get to my reservation? So I, I spend a lot of time fighting stupid ideas, but, um, you know, and the pipelines are really a question of where we're going to go, America. You want to keep shoving dirty oil down the, or you, or you want to move into something else. I mean, an electric car is 65% efficient. Mm-hmm. 65% efficient. a gas car is like 15%? 16%. Yeah, yeah. So why would you want to be dumb people and ride around in 16% efficient vehicles when you could, you know, have an electric car that, you know, gets around? And so... I think that there's a huge opportunity to not be stupid. I'd like to take it. You know? I like that. <laughs> it's, like, it's like me. No time like the present to quit doing stupid stuff, you know? A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is University of Montana President Seth Bodner, and you're listening to A New Angle. And so speaking, so that's one big piece of it is let's not do stupid stuff. Stop doing, stop stupid stuff from happening. Yeah. But we've talked about this before. You've got some strong ideas about good ideas. You know, the the next economy, what does the next economy look like in your community? 
and then how do some of those ideas scale up? Um, yeah, I mean, the next economy larger. is relocalized. Right. You know, we all live here, but the fact is, is that why would you ship food 1,400 miles from a farmer to a table? Why would yeah. you try to ship food in, in the time of climate change with all that additional fossil fuels lathered on it? And you know, know if the food's going to get there. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you secure communities would rebuild local food systems? Yeah, that's interesting how like we talk all this talk about national security and food security very rarely enters yeah. the conversation. We can't feed ourselves. You know, that seems pretty fundamental. Yeah, food security, you know, food sovereignty, food security is 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 I mean it's it shouldn't be a political issue. It's a common sense issue. Mm-hmm. Y'all want to trust getting your food from California? Good luck. Besides that, they're using frack and water to irrigate those fields. Sure. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, American agriculture is, is a ridiculous and dangerous situation. And, you know, and, and people talk about it as conventional agriculture. No, it's an aberration of 10,000 years of agriculture. People used to grow things. And in fact, most of the world still grows their own food. And 70% of the world's food is produced by people like me. Not by Kraft, Monsanto, and Syngenta. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the world's food is actually produced in 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 our own communities by people. A lot of them are women. You know, so I'm I'm a proponent of relocalizing food. You know, and then and then you figure out your trade agreements that are just and fair. And then some things you just gotta you know you you just you're just not gonna do. Like I'm, I I have a hard time. I really like avocados. You know, I just don't think right. that's going to happen in They're my... They're not in growing my, in northern Minnesota. Right. In my, you know, if I if I went on a strict carbon diet, yeah. I wouldn't have avocados. I like coconuts, too. I really like Thai food. You know? uh-huh. I mean, you know what I'm saying is yeah. it's like... Yeah, it's hard to be absolute You can have like... But that, but that coconuts, you could transport more easily. You know what I'm saying? You got a longer shelf life. Right. And you could... Well, and also you could like, you know, bottle them or can them and ship them by boat. Or you know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> You're that. reminding me of a little aside. I used to... Visit my grandparents. I grew up in New England. My grandparents would, would lived in Florida, and we go visit them. And I'd send friends coconuts, but you just like write the address. Oh, right, I remember those. Put a those. stamp yeah, on it. You yeah. could actually mail a coconut. Yeah, I remember that. Those are anyway, cool. Hugely inefficient, but but uh, you know, at some level, uh, yeah. I mean, and I'm I'm a bit of a local harvester. I mean, I have a local harvester with a plane ticket. You know, I mean, which is like, you know, I mean, it's a contradiction that is yeah. entertaining, but true. Like, I, you know, I, I go, uh, I brought some trade goods. I brought some wild rice. I was hoping to head back with some elk meat or some, you know, I don't have elk. Mm, we can set you up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, you know, what I'm saying is like, that's what I do is I, I, I like that kind of a trade system, but it's like, you know, it's kind of a joke because you got to have a plane ticket to do it. Right. But, you know, so I'm, I, so basically I see local energy um, in the time of power outages. I mean, I'm going to be lecturing about it later today, but, you know. Just take a little look. Yeah. The grid's going down. Mm-hmm. Grid's going to keep going down. So why wouldn't you, Montana, want to relocalize your grid? And, you know? that, and maybe I mean, you that's are. Another, you probably are, right? I mean, we're I trying to. I mean, that's another story of national security, too. Right. You know, if we have this, you know, one uh, piece of infrastructure that's that's hackable. Ailing. Yeah. I mean, look at PG&E and the campfire. Right, right. I mean, that was uh, power lines, right? So, you know, I would assume northern Minnesota, things like wind power would be a great option. Wind and solar. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, we are building a solar thermal panel manufacturing facility. It's called Eighth Fire Solar. Okay. Because like every that. time I say solar thermal panel manufacturing, that's like a lot of descriptions. But basically, south-facing wall of your house, you put one of these eight-by-four panels on. It, the, Montana is like Minnesota. It's cold but sunny, Right. Mm-hmm. And so when it's sunny, 
that heat still gathers in that panel. And then that panel, when it hits like 90 degrees in the panel, turns on the, turns on the, uh, the thermostat flips the heater fan, and then the fan blows the hot air into the house. Interesting, saves 20 to 30% of your winter heating bill. Now, why wouldn't you want to save it? You yeah. know what I'm saying? So that's, I'm, I'm trying to address fuel poverty in northern Minnesota. We are coming online. We just are finishing the final construction. We will be online by April selling solar thermal panels nationally. You know, we're going to start Minnesota. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. I already got a lot of orders. But, you know, so my, 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 my I see crisis as opportunity. And transition is essential. I mean, that's the fact is, is that if you want to survive, you got to make some transitions. And there's some pretty cool opportunities to do great stuff. So why wouldn't we want to do that? You know, instead of waiting for, you know, our future to be handed to us by the Trump administration. Who wants to do that? There's going to be a post-Trump era. I plan to be here. Yeah. And so how are you helping people make these transitions in your community? How are you helping them? install solar or decide that they're going to start growing hemp or, or other choices to relocalize their energy yeah, I mean, and food. You know, basically, and... I'm kind of like a community development economist in my village. Right. I mean, in my, in my tribe. I mean, I don't work for the tribe. I direct Honor the Earth, which is a national nonprofit. And I also, we just started Anishinaabe Agriculture Institute, and that's working on hemp. And, and that's, you know, the third example is, is hemp. I mean, it's, there's more examples, but hemp. I'm a, as I said, I'm a fiber hemp farmer, and I'm going to uh, build a mill. Okay. And uh, the mill that I'm going to build is pretty entertaining. It's kind of like that Johnny Cash song, one piece at a time. You know, because I've got some pieces. It's vintage equipment that came out of New England. And you know, you know, where I'm talking about. I got a mm -hmm. Sacco, mm -hmm. some piece of equipment like from Sacco and Vanzetti. Oh, you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Oh, like yeah. the Lowell. I got like massive. All the old mill towns. Like I have like all this cool stuff that I'm going to move into northern Minnesota and process fiber. And I'd like to make something for textiles because. You know, Minnesota used to have 11 hemp mills. Wow. How interesting is that? Yeah. 11 hemp mills. We grew all our own clothes and we made all our own rope. Go figure. And that was before. Remember they used to call it petroleum byproducts, plastics? Mm -hmm. Yep. They were called petroleum byproducts. You know what I'm saying? Now we don't refer to them as that. We kind of, they've had their own identities like nylon. Uh-huh. You know, you, you know exactly what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about. Synthetic but they, you know, fibers, so they, all these things. Right. They, they became like beings unto themselves. Well, they're all basically petroleum byproducts. Right. And so if in the post-petroleum era, you might want to go to something that's been growing for thousands of years. And, and you know the word canvas comes from cannabis. Right. Okay. You know, so why wouldn't you want to just do something cool like organic canvas? And, and so that's, you know... And we'll explain why it's a better crop than cotton, per se, to ah, be growing. Twice, twice the fiber per acre. Okay. Twice the fiber and per much acre. Less no water, pesticides right? and no water. I mean, right. basically, I grow dry... I, I dry farm, dry land farm. Mm -hmm. You know, which dry land farming in Minnesota is a little different than dry land farming probably in eastern Montana. Right. But it's a very forgiving crop. And I understand there's a guy, some guys here that are growing hemp. I'm not... Like, I don't... Um, to be super honest, the next economy should not look like the last economy. Mm-hmm. That's to say, I've been at hemp meetings, and I was at a state hemp meeting as a bunch of guys, you know, that are trying to figure out how to put glyphosate on their hemp. And I was like, that's not going to happen. Glyphosate? Is that a pesticide? Yeah, yeah. It's the stuff that gives, like, Roundup. Oh, geez. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's like there's some dumb ideas that continue, and we're just going to have to shake that out of them. Yeah. Well, that sounds kind of aggressive, but, you know, mm. I'm just saying uh, we're moving on into organic. Why would you want to add, you know, something with, that ends with side? Pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, side. You know, that's the same suffixes in 
as as in suicide, yeah. homicide, and well, genocide. Why would you put stuff like that on your food? Dumb people that do dumb things, you know. And and their their ideas are sold by corporations. So I'm ready to move on. You know, I guess you hear that, and so we're doing it. And and then people talk. You know, relocalization is is an essential part of it. But don't don't diminish the significance of that because relocalization in 25,000 communities is what the change is going to be made. If you think that the change is going to be made in Washington, you're going to live a sad life. Yeah, okay. You know, we're going to change in Washington because we're going to we're going to deal with voter suppression and we're going to and we're going to get people out to vote. Minnesota had the highest turnout of a midterm election in history of any state. Mm-hmm. We did that. We drove people to the damn polls that couldn't, you know, we're natives, you couldn't use your address. Yeah, there you go. Just like that North Dakota decision. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't even, like, people living in the village had to go drive into town. It's, like, ridiculous. So we're going to fix that for the next election. And then we're going to make sure that some, that, that you know, some good people are in, are in Washington, you know. And, and I don't agree with, I don't know that much about Montana politics, but I was, you know, Tester, I know, has been pretty good proponent uh-huh. for a lot of these things. And so, you know, we just need more, you know, I'm not, I'm just saying we need more enlightened people. And to be honest, probably a few more women and Native people, people of color, in Congress, because like that 85% white guys thing, that's not gonna work out. Those guys made a lot of bad decisions already. I think that their that their you know access card should be pulled. Frankly, do you think about? I mean, <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, but I was just like, no, you just look at these that's things fair. and you're like, wow, y'all, like you should just like you know, there's a. I work with a lot of enlightened people, and I love uh-huh. everybody. I was like, love, love everybody, you know, including some like super white guys. I love them too, because you know, it's all good. If you're good, but if you got to carry your damn bags around and we got to porter them for you, give me a break. Yeah, I'm that's done. A problem. I'm done. You know, along those lines, you've been on two vice presidential tickets. Do you do you think about running again? No, no, not interested. I mean, I feel like I mean, you know, people are asking me all the time, but I'm like, sure. well, I mean, first of all, I have 17 horses. It's a lot of horses, right? You know, I'm moving into the goat cheese thing. I want to do goat cheese. Like my retirement plan is to raise goat, you know, make goat cheese, you know, and raise hemp, fiber hemp. I'm I'm working on it. You know, at 60, I'm working on yeah. the next the next plan, right? That's a pretty good plan. Yeah, I like it. You know, I'm like the relocalization, and you know, I I you know. So anyway, I'm gonna I'm doing that, and uh, you know, why would I want to go get a headache? You know, but I'll, I go it, it's you know, as you likely know, I show up. When yeah, they ask me, absolutely. If they show, if they need me to testify in Washington, I show up. If they need me to testify in Minnesota, I show up. Because I want to, I want the system to work. I totally want the system to work. But I myself am a rural person. Okay. You know, I spent most of my life in rural areas, and I just really, you know, it's where you want to be. I, I don't really, yeah, I don't really got an interest in living in an urban area. I just don't, you know. Well, I suppose. I mean, if you're committed to relocalization and committed to your community. You know, there, there, for some, there is this draw to 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 run for office, but then, but then you're in Washington, and then you're in that system, and then you're not sort of living the life that you're trying to promote within your community. Well, and it's also kind of who has the the, the stomach for that? Yeah, that's true. Or the too. stomach, or the or the acumen. You know, I'm like, if you got that, honey, you go. I'll support you. Okay. You know, that's me. I'm like a hundred percent behind. You know, the the you know the new Native women who got elected. I was like. You know, I seen Deb Howland down when I was down in, uh, she's from New Mexico. Uh-huh. And I was like, I saw her and I was like, you go, girl. You know, and every time there's somebody new and visionary elected to Congress or to a state, you know, I'm like 100% behind them. 
You know, because some people got that gift. Like there's a woman who got elected in, in, in North Dakota. Her name's Ruth Anna Buffalo. Okay. She's a Mandan and Rickera woman. And she, uh, she unseated the guy who passed the legislation that denied Indian people who didn't have a street address the right to vote in North Dakota. I don't know if you remember this case, but it, 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 I, don't. I think the Supreme no. Court ruled that they, they could do that. And so, you know, North Dakota, all those Indian people who went to the rural post office are not just Indian people. Like a lot of white people in rural areas have to go to the post office. They don't mm-hmm. have mail delivery, right? Yeah. Um, denied him the right to vote. But she unseated him. You know, so I'm saying, and she's, and she's introduced a piece of legislation that I think, I don't know if it passed yet, but on, on having a tracking system for missing and murdered indigenous women. You know, so I want to see those people get elected. If, you, if you've got that fire in your belly to go make this democracy work in those halls, you do it. I'm going to make it work at home. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to practice democracy. I'm going to practice governance in my tri- with my tribe. You know, and I'm Anishinaabe and I live on the reservation. That's what I'm going to do. Right. And you're going to – it sounds like what you're describing is you're, you're playing a new game. Right? The old game is broken and not interested yeah. in playing that well, game. Well, I'm just following that, that instruction that we had at the seventh fire. And it's called lighting the eighth fire. Okay. I'm going to make that. We're going to do that. And that's, you know, I'm actually, I'm actually writing a book on it now. But, you know, my, my point is, is, that, is that you need to, uh, um, you know, so it's not, it's, it's a new economy. It's a new economy for all of us, but it's predicated on land-based values, which everybody used to have those until they became a bunch of transients who worked for corporations. You know, there was a day when people's grandparents lived in the same place and they could taste the soil. You know, I've, German farmers, they talked about tasting the soil. Okay. You know, and this was German farmers like in Wisconsin. And I was like, that's so interesting. You know, but that's the people that we all used to be. Uh-huh. That, that level of connection. Right. Yeah. I mean, just saying, you know, and, and whatever color, people used to have a connection. And then in the past 20 and 30 years, we've gotten super distant. You know, the nature deficit disorder. I mean, most people spend most of their time looking at a screen that's about, you know, three by six. Yeah. And they don't even connect. You know, they don't even connect. You could go in a room. Of, I mean, you and I know it. I could go in my household and, and you know, there'll be, you know, a visiting bunch of people and half of them are 20 and they're not even talking to each other. They're all looking at their phones mm-hmm. in my house. I'm like, wow, that's so baffling to me. You know, our ancestors navigated by the stars and you can't walk out without a GPS. Most people can't see the stars because there's so much light pollution. Right. But last night I, when, when we flew into Missoula, I couldn't see the stars. Yeah, probably not too many. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thank God there's a, there's a shuttle to jump into. Right? Yes. Wise move. Mm. Um, so how do you view situations where, you know, you've mentioned situations where, you know, you're, you're mobilizing your community and I... If I recall, you sort of said, and some white people were interested in that too. And so how do you view situations where the the objectives of the tribal community align with the white community and when, when they don't in terms of mobilizing whatever coalition well, you're I trying mean, to mobilize? Well, I mean, nobody in Minnesota wants that pipeline. 68,000 people came out and testified and most of those were white people. Right. So that's relatively Oh, unifying. yeah. And that was like a multiracial alliance that defeated the Sandpiper, which was Enbridge's first proposal for our state, okay. which is a fracked oil pipeline out of North Dakota. And so, you know, we built a multiracial alliance because we all drink the same water and we live on the lakes. And right. I have to say that my past five years of pipeline fighting, I'm a, I'm a water protector. That's what I refer to myself as a water protector. I met a lot of amazing people that we would have never met. 
you know, and and uh, we've all been traumatized by the state of Minnesota, and I'm hoping that we aren't all shot at this summer if we don't yeah. if we don't win in our regulatory system. Sure, but they'll be right there with me, you know, you know, and so I am I am you know I'm I'm interested in in multiracial alliances, and you know, to be honest with you, I mean, I actually think that once enlightened, once enlightened, let me just put it that way, then a lot of non-Indian people will will support you know what we're doing. I mean, just to have to be honest with you, like growing hemp, you know, people used to like kind of pull away. I have three years, a state permit, state of Minnesota. I can't grow marijuana, can't grow anything with THC in it, only hemp. Three, three years, a state issued permit for that. And, you know, so I'm growing and, and my tribe is growing, has a hemp plot. And I took over my tribe's hemp plot and, and I'm expanding that out. But, you know, one day I'm in my yard and, and my farm, I bought a hemp farm last year and this, this cop pulls in. Okay. And like everybody scatters. Not a reservation cop, state trooper or something like yeah, that. Yeah, pulls in. And we didn't know. It was like an unmarked police car, but they pull in. Everybody like scatters because, mm-hmm. you know, God only knows. And yeah. I go walk over to the guy and he's like, he's like, hey, I've been trying to bend your ear. That's what he said. He said, I've been trying to catch you. He said, I drive by this house, your farm all the time. I have a big marijuana leaf on my farm. He says, uh, I want to grow hemp. Interesting. He says, I want to grow hemp. How do I do that? He says, I got 300 acres. We used to farm. You know, we're organic. We used to do dairy. We, you know, we're not doing dairy now. I was like, give me a couple of years. I'll figure that out. Mm. And you come and see me. So, you know, I feel like people want, you know, I, in Minnesota, I, I talk to the state, uh, the state agencies, regulatory officials, got the new governor. I said, look, you want an economy that people don't fight over. How about we do something that we all agree on? Like organic agriculture. Yeah. You know, the people who want a pipeline, that's a short-term job and everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a Canadian multinational. Why are, you gonna, why are you going to subject your democracy to the whims of a Canadian multinational who doesn't have a plan B? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. So, you know, there's a lot of people that are they're all with it. And, and I have to say, people stop me in the store all the time, non-Indian people. Non-Indian people stop me right in the grocery store and say, uh, thank you. Sure. How do I sign up? Yeah, so that's a, that's my next question. Yeah, it's a super like, how interesting do, moment. How do we become? How's a guy like me or somebody listening, learning about these issues for the first time? Or how do you become enlightened? Well, first of all, you know, y'all got the opportunity. You know, you can look at our stuff at Honor the Earth or Winona's Hemp. You know, um, a lot of the issues around hemp, I mean, are emergent everywhere. I'm saying, please don't put glyphosate on your hemp. Please don't put pesticides and herbicides on it. Just let that be those those girls grow. You know, if you if you want to, you know, I I want agriculture that has life in it, not death. Yeah, and so like thinking about that, I mean, you said you you can't grow THC or or, or marijuana on your on your property. Yet there is this emerging cannabis industry. Yeah. Yet, and there's some effort. You know, that like you take the Colorado example, and there. They're taxing it heavily and raising money for presumably some some good things, maybe not all good things, but it's a revenue generator for the state. And you know, how do this is an example of somewhere where we could have yeah, the next Montana, economy. Montana should legalize. We could have this next economy you're describing, yet at the same time, multinationals, large corporations, pharmaceutical industry could move in and swoop no, it all up. I feel up. like you know, put on your big boy panties or your big girl panties, okay. Montana. You know, do it right. I mean, I think that you need to support local, you know, what you want is a renaissance and a revitalization of, of organic farming, or you want farmers here to benefit from it. 
And, you know, I understand that you had a, ma- a legalized marijuana industry at the beginning of it, and mm-hmm. then it got Years closed ago. down by the state. And so then who gets to grow? A bunch of multinationals? Like, I don't know. But Minnesota also has a, a, a medical marijuana, and they only have a couple of producers, and I think that they should open that up. I think tribal people should. And I'm going to be super honest with you. Like, as an economist, I'm so geeky. I was like, so I go ask all the dealers on White Earth. Not all of them, but, you know, everybody talks to me. I was like, so how much you sell? How much you sell a week? Uh-huh. And you start looking at that, and, you know, so say you got a tribe that spends $4 million a year on b- purchasing marijuana from the Oregon and Mexican and Colorado cartels mm-hmm. or whoever. Like, that's a hemorrhage to your community. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? If you grew it locally, that money would stay local. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, if you didn't have to buy it because you could grow it yourself, you could develop a relationship with those plants, which is what a lot of it is about, is relationship. If you think you can just purchase everything and you're going to be well, you're wrong. You know, and everybody here knows that. You can't just keep buying stuff to get well. At some point, you have to, like, go a little deeper. You know, and I actually am a, I'm a proponent that you should grow your own. You know, I mean, I grow CBDs. I mean, I grow industrial hemp. But, you know, I grew CBDs this last year. First time. And I, I didn't know anything about it. You know, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I never grew marijuana. I was like, oh, my God, they're turning into boys. I mean, there's, like, the sex... <laughs> You know, there's like plant sex, but you know, those plants were happy and I'm looking forward to, everybody's looking forward to it again because people would come and just go stand in my field. I mean, I'm just talking like a little garden patch. Sure. Scale it appropriately. Quit trying to be like mega capitalists. That's the, that's the foundationally wrong. You know, this plant is an opportunity to, to rebuild a relationship with, you know, and, and the plant is so versatile from everything from the, from the hemp seeds, you know, my pesto sauce. That's what I do. I, I make hemp, hemp uh, heart pesto. Super hemp good. heart pesto with some of your basil there? Yeah, with like local, local hemp hearts, right? Ooh, and so then you have like a nice. local hemp. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. what if you took that fabulous recipe and I don't have pine nuts? You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? I used you to use to cashews. I was like, oh, those don't even grow near here. I was like, well, what could I use? Well, I could use hazelnuts. But then I was like, well, I'm growing hemp. Mm-hmm. It's got a super meaty flavor. I mean, not meaty. I'm just saying it's a rich oil. It's a rich nut okay. or a rich. So, you know, do cool stuff. Don't be like a jerk and try to make a bunch of money off of everything. Make a living, not a killing. Make a living, not a killing. I like that. Do cool stuff. Make a living, not a killing. I mean, that seems like the path to enlightenment right there. Connection. With all these things yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like how you want to live. How yeah. you want to live. It's like super stressful being a capitalist jerk. <laughs> it's a hard life. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I look at those guys and I'm like, you look just damn miserable. Yeah. You know, I was like, why would you want to do that? You know, and of course, I have to spend a lot of time fighting their stupid, miserable selves. But I was like, why don't you just be like, you know, a little more chill? Yeah. Smile once. once smile or twice. once. Hang out with your plants. <laughs> quit trying to exploit everything. You know, it's like way less stressful, you know. And to me, that's kind of like, you know, the, you know, the Dalai Lama's approach. I mean, it's like be, you know, be kind, be happy. Yeah. You know, the next, that's the next economy looks like that. I like that. Yeah. Well, no, no, this, this seems like a great place to end it. And you've got a busy day ahead of you on campus. I'm hugely thankful for the time we were able to spend together and you sharing your ideas and passion. Um, final question would be, if anybody listening wants to get more involved, I mean, you've mentioned your website, Honor the Earth, or your organization, and Honor the Earth. Hemp, if you want to help me capitalize the, the hemp, yeah. they call it the hempire. 
The Hemp Empire. The Hemp Empire. The Hemp Empire. So yeah, so how do people event. find your work? Yeah, at, uh, Winona's Hemp is on, I think that we have both uh, winonashemp.org on, and then we also have on my Facebook was Winona's Hemp, but we have a, you know, we're, I have to say a Kickstarter. I just started. It's not a Kickstarter. It's a fundraiser for this. I did raise money last year for buying a, sure. a for for buying some farmland. But you know, and then just look at, just think about these things. And I'm I'm you know be tonight I'm going to be lecturing, uh, but you know the the longer term stuff is under you know honor the earth. And then the other thing I'm going to be starting to broach the topic topic of I just have to say is this solutionary rail. Okay. Putting electric, having electric trains and using the transmission lines along the rail to move your renewable energy from Montana. Hmm, I like that. Solutionary rail. Look it up online. It's super interesting. I just started researching. Yeah, solutionary we'll, rail. We'll post some links campaign. to all this stuff in the mm-hmm. show notes. Yeah. yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's people thinking, and there's people doing, and you know, Montana. We we don't want to be the last ones to learn about how to solve problems. We want to be the, you know, we want to, we want to, we want to do it. You know, so. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks Thank for being mm-hmm. here. Thanks Miigwech. for all your work and good luck. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Miigwech. All right. That was certainly fun, wasn't it? Thanks to Winona for sharing her wisdom and her passion. And check out her organization, Honor the Earth, at honorearth.org. Okay. Coming up next week, we have Missoula author Jeremy Smith, whose recent book, Breaking and Entering, has enjoyed tremendous early success. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, part of the Michelle and Lauren Hansen Media Lab at the University of Montana College of Business. Remember that this podcast was supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you'd ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkle, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.